Hey everybody, welcome to another Three Right Turns. I kind of want to get right to it this week. Uh, I was going to do an entire mailbag episode, um, but I was so excited that something happened in the form of the Supreme Court deciding not to do something that I wanted to talk about. It's it's an issue that's kind of dear to my heart if you've uh, been following me on Bald Move for any amount of time. Uh, so they decided not to hear an appeal from the Ninth Circuit Court. If you know anything about American politics, you might know that the Ninth Circuit Court has a reputation, uh, famously or infamously, for being a notoriously liberal circuit court. And they handed down a decision that cities cannot outlaw or levy fines against the crime of sleeping outdoors in public spaces if there is no option for shelter in those cities. So what this means if you're already homeless and therefore almost certainly broke, if not also deeply in debt, a city can't give you a $50 ticket and or haul you off to jail so that now you have a criminal record in addition to being homeless. The court quoted a famous 19th century French poet and journalist Anatole France in its ruling saying, the law and all its majestic equality forbids the poor and rich alike to sleep under bridges. And used that as a springboard to say that criminalizing the simple act of sleeping outside on public property is cruel and unusual if there is no alternative. And again, it's not saying you can't arrest homeless people. Wouldn't want to have that. It's just saying that you can't do it without providing them a safe alternative like shelters. Homelessness has been a large and growing problem in American cities. Uh, rising housing costs, poor zoning laws, economic equality. There's a lot of reasons why this is happening but it's been in recent years kind of pushing uh, to a boiling point. And the Supreme Court decided not to hear the appeal. And what this means is the Ninth Circuit decision effectively is binding on uh, nine Western states, including California and uh, Oregon and Washington State, which are kind of hotbeds of uh, homeless activity uh, and uh, kind of like uh, the ground center of the struggle between you know the citizenry and the homeless. And it's going to no doubt trigger similar lawsuits and other circuits that will either result in a decision the Supreme Court will have to hear. Like if they, you know, find opposite of the ninth, then the Supreme Court will have to decide which, you know, decision is correct. Or the circuits will affirm the finding of the ninth and this will quickly spread east and become the de facto rule of the land. Now, for the conservative opinion on this, I'm going to go with the intellectual dark web luminary Ben Shapiro. If you don't recognize Ben's name, you surely have seen a smug face looking at you from memes on Facebook or Twitter, emblazoned with his trademark phrase, facts don't care about your feelings. He's writing for Fox News, an opinion piece entitled, Homelessness in California, West Coast States is here to stay. Thanks, Supreme Court. I think that's a wild headline that the only thing we can do to curb homelessness is to criminalize it, apparently. And having tried nothing else, Shapiro is all out of ideas. His first paragraph, that court, a repository of stupidity and radicalism, the most icely of our nation's federal bench, decided that writing a $25 ticket to people camping, quote unquote, on the sidewalk is precisely the sort of brutality the founding fathers sought to prohibit and stopping torture under the Eighth Amendment. Pretty nice Star Wars reference. I feel like the rebellion was famously pro-criminalization of homeless. And, of course, we know Palpatine's reckless and wasteful spending on housing the poor citizenry of the Imperium was instrumental to the fall of the Empire. So pretty, pretty on point. He continues, that ruling was so patently insane that even liberal politicians such as Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas joined the attempt appeal. 
to appeal. Letting the current law stand handicaps cities and counties from acting nimbly to aid these perishing on the street, exacerbating unsafe and unhealthy conditions that negatively affect our most vulnerable residents, uh, this Mark Ridley Thomas explained. Can anyone write into three right turns, uh, 3RT at, at swizzbold.com, to explain how L.A. County has acted nimbly on the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles? Like, was this problem being swiftly and decisively dealt with and they're making a real dent in the problem and then the ninth court just shut that whole process down? Or were they nimbly arresting and moving homeless people from businesses and neighborhoods with the money and power to complain about the problem and hoping the tent cities just kind of go away on their own? Because that's, the, that's the, the idea I've had about how this has been going for the last 10 years, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Shapiro continues, the Ninth Circuit ruling will stand. That ruling for... That ruling followed a separate 2006 ruling from the same court, which found that cities could not ban people from sleeping in public spaces. In this case, Judge Marsha Burzen, uh, I should out myself as the fact I, I have a hard time pronouncing almost anything. So if I butcher these names, I apologize. In uh, language so twisted, it would make yoga pioneer Bikram Chowdhury jealous, wrote that the state may not criminalize the state of being homeless in public places and thus could not criminalize the consequence of being homeless. I mean... It doesn't seem particularly torturous language to me, but I also think like debtors prisons are a bad idea. And I feel like a lot of guys on Shapiro's side seem to have been working overtime to bring those concepts back. So I I, I don't know what's firm twisted these days. He continues, it's worth noting that being homeless is not a state of being. It's not an immutable characteristic. It's an activity that can certainly be regulated. I don't think anybody's arguing that. Uh, is anyone arguing that since you can't bust someone from peaceably sleeping on a park bench or a tent on a sidewalk that like drugs, rape, robbery and murder uh, among the homeless is now a hands off type situation? It, it seems some some slippery slopery at, uh, at the worst there at the best. Shapiro continues, that doesn't mean the best solution is prosecution of those living on the street. A huge swath of homeless people are mentally ill or addicted to drugs and would benefit from better laws concerning involuntary commitment or mandatory drug rehabilitation. And, and this is the point in the article where Ben lets you know that he's really a moderate, probably even a liberal by his by his eyes. But I, I just I'm not sure it's a great idea to grant sweeping powers to involuntarily commit people to institutions that we know are almost certainly criminally understaffed and underfunded. It just doesn't seem like a great solution. And I'm all for drug rehabilitation programs, but the real problem is that housing is incredibly expensive in the places with the best economic growth and opportunity. And once you have a criminal record or spend any significant time on the streets, you become basically unemployable. Ben continues, but to suggest that cities cannot do anything to effectively police those sleeping in the streets is to damn those cities to the spread of disease, the degradation of public spaces, and an increase in street crime. I mean... We could house people. At what point is the expense of people squatting in unsanitary and dangerous tent cities greater than just providing people with the dignity of shelter and programs focused on providing them their basic needs while they attempt to reenter society? I mean, have you seen how much it costs to keep someone in prison nowadays? I just looked into it. The national average is $31,000 a year, according to the Vera Institute of Justice. In some states, it's as high as $60,000 to keep one person in jail. And they get free mental, health, and dental care. What if we just spent that kind of money on housing and social safety nets? Ben continues, 
Here's the problem. Cities that have attempted to provide increased housing for the homeless, despite some early successes, have seen their problems return. Cities like Seattle and Los Angeles have attempted to build new housing. It's been an expensive failure. I mean, this is actually true, but Ben doesn't want to get into the real reasons. Other municipalities force their homeless to cities that provide better care for them. That's a lot of why this problem gets worse after it initially had was successfully taken care of. L.A. takes care of their homeless and then they have a bunch of homeless bus to them or they are forced to migrate there voluntarily, quote unquote, um, because the police hassle them and arrest them if they stay around. And, you know, you're always going to have fair weather cities having a disproportionate homeless problem because all are things being equal. It's way better to be homeless in Austin, Texas or Los Angeles, California, than it is to be homeless in Chicago or Indianapolis or Cleveland because you can't freeze to death in those cities where it's perpetually warm. So now we've got the doom and gloom uh, take from Ben Shapiro uh, where we can't criminalize homeless people. So what the fuck can we do? I actually recommend for an optimistic take, uh, there's a guy that I've been turned on to on YouTube called Bo of the Fifth Column because he was really pumped up about it. And Bo is a lot like me, only more so. He's more Southern. He's more economically radical. He's more homespun and folksy in his delivery. Uh, he always starts his videos with, oh, hey, now there, Internet people. I got a, sh- a thought I just want to share with you. But I thought he was pretty giddy in his analysis because unless the Supreme Court takes up a future case, which they might, this is going to force wealthy citizens, corporations and cities to actually do the hard work of caring for or getting homeless people back on their feet. They're not going to have any other choice because the alternative is to have people camping in front of their luxury clothing stores and gated communities. And we can't have that. He also cites uh, exciting advances in technology. He he talks about something that I'm not really sure about, but I think is probably soon to be coming. The fact that some firm or another has developed technology that lets them essentially 3D print housing. And they have a printer that can print a, a two-bedroom, one-bath dwelling in less than 24 hours. Now, there's a lot standing in this company's way of implementing these plans. There's lots of zoning regulation that says you essentially can't build houses like this. You can't have like these small uh, single person dwelling uh, anywhere in a city. Uh, There's lots of people that fear destruction of their own property values and they don't want to live next to public housing, uh, thinking that it's going to be a nuisance. And if that happens to be a fear of yours, I highly recommend watching the HBO series Show Me a Hero. It's written by David Simon of The Wire fame. It's just six episodes long. It's extremely watchable. It stars the mega hot and super talented Oscar Isaac. It features the real life story of the fight over desegregated public housing in Yonkers during the late 80s and early 90s. And it will challenge your assumptions about how we do public housing in the United States. And it'll take you about two Star Wars worth of time to to watch it. So I'm sure there's going to be some of you that's going to watch at least two hours uh, probably or at least six hours of the Star Wars content over the next couple weeks. Maybe uh, fit Show Me Hero into your your watching schedule. Also, uh, Bald Move, the pop culture podcast outfit I work for, does a huge charity drive each February. Last year, we raised over $15,000 for the National Alliance in Homelessness during a 24-hour live watch on uh, Twitch uh, of the Star Wars series. It hold marathon. Shit, we could have watched Show Me a Hero four times. Uh, but we'd appreciate your support this time of year. We're not sure exactly when we're going to be doing that in February, but if you follow at bald move or at Swizzbold on your favorite social media site for more details, uh, they will be forthcoming in early 2020. If you'd like to help out or support that effort, because I think it's, uh, something worth doing.
Okay, feedback. Uh, 3RT at SwizzBold.com is how you get to this. As I said, I intended to do the whole podcast on feedback, but I was so excited about this homeless non-decision decision by the Supreme Court. I had to talk about it. Also, uh, one other thing, we have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash SwizzBold, which I hope becomes a hub of good faith discussion and collaboration in the year to come. But I was kind of bummed out last week when a thread entitled Problems with the Wealth Tax... Uh, was posted where a user was doing exactly what I asked them to in the podcast, which is discuss the ideas I presented in the Star Trek Republican and the Frigi Democrat podcast. And it's down to zero upvotes. And I upvoted it for one. Uh, It was in negative when I first found it. And the post was respectful. It's in good faith. And, you know, I have problems with it. I don't agree with a lot of the points. Um, I'm going to have a response in the weeks ahead. But for better or worse, I think it represents kind of the state of discourse in the country about economics. And it's as useful a place as any to start this conversation from. So if you are on Reddit and you are you do stop by SwizzBold, I'd encourage people not to downvote discussions like this. I mean, people being a dick, people being hateful and whatnot. I mean, we, we heard an example of that in the second podcast. We know what it looks like. By all means, downvote that stuff, report it so we can take action as moderators. But I'd like to use opportunities like this to work on us as a community not being reactionary, to get comfortable being outside our bubbles, and to either engage with the ideas if we're able, or support the conversation if not. Um, So just wanted to say that. Let's get to the mailbag at 3RT at SwizzBold.com. Debbie is the first one. As someone who currently works a four-day, 10-hour-a-day work schedule, I can attest to the fact that I am happier. I work Monday through Thursday and have Fridays off in addition to the weekend. My personal days that I take off from work are usually spent doing things I enjoy because I can schedule health appointments and other things people would need to use their personal time for on Fridays. I really have become a happier person with the schedule, and it really helps my work-life balance. I am also very lucky that I get to work from home. Both of these are good examples of companies rolling with the changes of modern employment. I can only hope that more companies can see studies like this one and work towards creating good work-life balance and overall employee happiness. And she cites here an article uh, on NPR uh, of a study. This was this was released in early November from Japan's uh, Microsoft office that tried a four-day work week and found it boosted the workers' empl- uh, productivity by up to 40%. Uh, I will include that link in the show notes. And I think these are all great ideas. And I'm I'm glad to see that you found a better work-life balance and satisfaction, Debbie. But I think we can actually do better. Uh, One thing I hope for in my lifetime is to see a 32-hour, four-day-a-week work week with three-day weekends become seen as a standard default labor practice. Now... I'm not prepared to defend that right now because this is the feedback podcast. This isn't the advancing a labor cause podcast. But I know that a lot of people are going to say that's crazy. We can't afford that. It's going to make us lazy and indolent. And, you know, a lot of those arguments were the same ones that people said when we invented a 40-hour work week and we instituted the idea of a weekend in the late 19th, early 20th century. And labor had to fight and bleed and die in the streets to get those rights. Hopefully, we can work together to get better conditions uh, without all that bloodshed and strife this time around. But, you know, if automation increases require less actual labor to achieve similar economic productivity, reducing work hours but keeping the same salary and benefits for those reduced hours is kind of a logical way to increase employment opportunity. 
because you get more people a chance to bite the same apple. You require less people, you know, there's only so many jobs to go around. So you make the job smaller and have more people doing them. Or, you know, we can let the people employing robots keep all that money over the next hundred years that used to be ours. Um, I know which way I'll be leaning and voting, but, you know, that's something we can talk about. Michael C., I have some concerns with you being the only host considering that you are a cis white man. Now, let's parenthetically point out that uh, cis in this case means that um, I was born in the body and I identify with the body that I was born into. So like I was born biologically male, I identify as male, uh, and I'm also uh, heterosexual. I, I am sexually attracted to uh, people of the opposite gender. So I just want to explain that. Uh, Michael had the concern, if you intend to talk about topics such as queer folk or racism, I hope you consider bringing on guests who are part of these marginalized groups who are more well-equipped to talk about their own experiences and oppression. And you're absolutely right, Michael. That is a solid point. Uh, and it's something that's that's currently being talked about a lot in progressive spaces because it's kind of undeniable that the real superstars of the podcasting world and the YouTube world when it comes to progressive politics are largely uh, middle class or better. They're largely white. Uh, they're largely cis, um, although that's not as big of a deal. But they're certainly white and they're, they're certainly better off economically than the majority of the country. But I want to talk about like in-group and out-group dynamics because I've seen lots of of, of creators have, have this problem. Um, if you're dealing with people who by default think that, as you say, black folk, queer folk, uh, people that are different than them are just whiners or attention seekers who can't hack it in the real world and they're seeking to stack the deck politically and socially, economically in their favor sending black and queer folk in to that group to discuss the matter is not going to help. And that sucks. I mean, I've seen several black creators that I support on Patreon, for example, uh, really hurt by the fact that white people, people like me are getting the disproportionate support, media attention and money for essentially explaining to white people why their life story is valid and should be believed especially when a lot of times they've been active uh, on YouTube longer, they've been had podcasts uh, longer, and yet they've been doing more work, they actually are living their experiences, and they're less successful than the white people that are coming and have this cottage industry of white-splaining racism to the other white folks. So how do you square that circle? I see my mission on Three Right Turns as being sort of an ambassador to say that you can subscribe to these leftist thoughts and, and policies and politics, and you don't have to lose your own identity, your own livelihood, uh, your sense of pride in yourself or happiness. I don't think because of that, this podcast is ever going to be like on the bleeding edge of any particular line of liberal and progressive thought. It is like if you talk about from mainstream American politics and, and a lot of people uh, that have written me in in the last couple of weeks, I can clearly tell are to the left of that. Uh, but if you're from like a mainstream American political perspective, a lot of the things that we talk about in this podcast are already pretty fucking radical. Like the idea that we should have universal health care 
is not something that is just a thing we can take for granted here in America, you know? Uh, that's something that seems like really basic to me, but it's still something that we're actively not just fighting Democrat on like Republican. There's fights within the Democratic Party about whether that's smart and to how what extent it should be, whether we should have single payer, et cetera. So, again, it's not intended to be on the bleeding edge. It's more about how to start having these progressive conversations with our friends and family and destigmatizing these politics and policies. And if you're like woke enough to critique points I'm making on this podcast um, or to like, ooh, that sounded weird or, oh, I don't know if Aaron explained that the best way, you're probably wasting your time on this podcast. I mean, if you want to mainline like the black trans woman experience, check out Cat Black on YouTube. If you want to advocate for reparations, read Tanahasi Coates and then tell your white friends about it. Like, figure all that stuff and then go and evangelize. I mean, if you're black, brown, trans, or any flavor of identity polit- politics that kind of gets shit on in America, and you have recommendations for like podcasts, YouTube series, authors, journals, whatever, uh, that people that want to advance their understanding can turn to that are by actual minorities, please send these in to me, 3RT at SwizzBold.com, because I want to create a library of recommended sources to go to. I want to widen out my uh, library and exposure to sources. I'd like to find really good people I can be like, you know what? Uh, if you're wanting to learn more about this such and such a topic, I want to send you to this person so you can get the story straight from them. But I don't know how far I want to kind of quote unquote progress three right turns because I think its stated mission has value and will for quite some time. There might also be room on SwizzBold to platform some of these voices on like shows of their own. Hopefully shows not hosted by some 40 year old white guy from rural Indiana. I think that would be incredible. Uh, And I'm having some conversations with people who have emailed me and have put me in contact with people. And that's something I'm going to be continuing to doing in 2020. But we'll just have to see how things grow and what kind of support we end up getting. But it's certainly a valid concern. I completely understand where you're coming from. And uh I'm trying to work it from my side of the street as best as I can. And if you got ideas on how I can do it better, 3RT at SwizzBold.com. Lord By had some really solid points about making conservative arguments for uh, health care in, in particular uh, that I found really interesting. He starts, uh, the free market focuses action towards financial rewards in the most efficient way possible. The healthcare system in the U.S. is paid when a patient or consumer takes medication, has tests, uses a medical device, has surgery or some other procedure, or otherwise needs healthcare. That the U.S. has one of the most expensive systems in the world should not be a surprise because it's just business trying to get as much money as possible from their customers like any other business would. Ideally, we'd want a system that incentivizes health and prevention of disease, but if everyone were healthy, nobody would get paid under the U.S. system. I think this is among the most powerful arguments for government-run healthcare for folks approaching it from a more conservative perspective. And that's a great point, Lord By. I really like this. It's a lot of times you can get a lot of headway on climate issues if you start talking about like market externalities. For example, what is the cost of dumping gigatons of carbon dioxide into the air. I mean, usually you won't find even the staunchest conservative that is like, oh, that cost is zero. In fact, well, I mean, you get some of them that actually say it's good because CO2, it's what plants crave. And the more CO2, the more plants, more plants is oxygen. Ah, it's a science. 
Um, but most of them will say like, okay, yeah, that, that seems like it could be something that's bad and something would cost something to clean up. So then you move the question to who pays for that, right? If you've got a business that as a byproduct of their factory or whatever is dumping poison in a river, um, we make them clean it up and we put regulations so that they can't do it again. Because if a company is dumping shit in a river for free versus another company that's trying to compete with that company that's not dumping shit into a river, uh, it's impossible for the company that's doing things right to compete because there's no cost to doing things wrong, right? So why can't we have things like a carbon tax or some kind of cap and trade on carbon system? Uh, These things that were like in the late 80s and 90s seen as conservative solutions to climate change problems are now being attacked as like ultra radical leftist ideas. Like look at what Justin Trudeau gets every time he talks about a carbon tax in Canada. Um, Why is that seen as so radical when we're just trying to put a cost on an obvious market externality? Uh, other good arguments, he continues. We've had universal health care for decades, but only through the most expensive delivery system possible, the emergency room. We should find a cheaper way to deliver on the existing universal health care requirement until we are, as a society, willing to let people die at the doors of emergency rooms because they can't afford to help or defer emergency surgeries until people can prove they're able to pay. The free market literally won't work. That's another great point. And it's something because it's, it's usually hard to find a conservative that advocates for just letting people die. Like a person comes in with an acute issue and a lot of things that they hang their hat on is saying that that just doesn't happen in our system. If you go into an emergency room and you got something wrong with you, then the doctors have to, by both their professional code of ethics and hospital policy, take care of you regardless of your ability to pay. But they ignore how fucking expensive that is and how brutal it is to be a poor person, to be sidled with that bill and to go through all the negotiations to try to argue it down. Um he continues, consumers don't make value decisions on healthcare. You aren't in a position to negotiate pricing or walk away when you're brought to the emergency room with a heart attack or stroke. You should be leery of choosing the cheapest option possible when the consequences for poor care could be death or a disability. And you're probably not qualified to assess the quality of care offered because you don't have the knowledge or education or background or experience. You would probably agree to pay any amount of money for the slightest chance to save the life of a loved one. Therefore, the free market, again, literally doesn't work. You also can't uh, cover pre-existing conditions without penalty unless everyone is in the system, i.e. the mandate. Otherwise, the incentive is to go without coverage until something goes wrong because you aren't penalized for not having insurance before. I wouldn't look at it as everyone being required to buy something, but rather as everyone being required to pay their fair share for what they already get. If you need emergency care in this country, you're required to get it. Why shouldn't there be some expense associated with that benefit unless we literally want to reward freeloaders? I mean, there's a lot of the fucked up things in American politics come down to this issue. Why should I pay for something if I'm not using it? But there's so many things that we just accept, like whether you have a car or a driver's license, you're paying for roads. Uh, Whether you read a book, you are paying for libraries. Um, Whether you have a kid that goes to school or not, you are paying taxes to provide schools because... You know, a lot. Of the, why, why do we do those things? It's because we get a benefit out of it. Like whether you have kids going to school or not, you have a benefit uh, from not having uneducated kids running around your neighborhood causing trouble. Right. Uh, we got to get back to that. Like 
just because we don't personally get a use of it, if society gets a use of it and it makes society better, it actually makes our lives better as a as a result. And that's one of the big arguments for, you know, a progressive tax policy. Uh, wealthy people get a disproportionate benefit out of society working correctly because they're the ones that use the roads to make money and increase their business and benefit from an educated workforce to put in uh, to employ in their factories and their companies. Uh, so they should have to pay more because they get more than a person that just, you know, drives to work and has a single kid at school. Uh, so I think all of these are great points to which I really have nothing to add that I haven't already added. Um, I think this is a pretty good assessment of where we're at in the healthcare debate. And if anyone has any arguments against these points, because I, like I said, I think this feels like this is kind of the end game for the healthcare argument. If there's some that I've missed, some arguments that I've missed uh, going the other way, please send those in to 3RT at swizzbold.com. Stacy says, this year I've been working on trying to transition from simply talking about anti-racism and actually acting on it and trying to be part of a solution instead of passively clucking at how terrible it is while I continue to enjoy my white privilege. I'd love to hear your perspective on how to do this even more because I think a lot of people are in this position. Some things that I am currently trying or have tried to do. Stop arguing with people of color when they point out that something is racist. Don't try to say the white person, oh, they didn't mean it like that. You should instead stop, listen, and consider why this thing is racist and try to reflect on how I may have done something similar uh, without thinking. I think that's a really powerful point, Stacy, And a lot of it is well-meaning. A couple months ago, I saw a Twitter exchange where a young white liberal woman tried to talk to a black man who was complaining about, well, he wasn't complaining. He's just pointing out that a lot of times when he's out on the street and he's walking around, white people come up to him and they have dogs and the dog is like acting crazy aggressive towards this black person. And, you know, the white person is like, oh, I don't know what's gotten into him. Oh, it's so, uh, and they don't have any problems with anybody else. And he was just pointing out that that's something that's happening to him as a black person. Uh, and that's kind of fucking awful, right? I mean, I think the impulse as a decent, good-hearted person, if you see someone being unfairly bullied, uh, a lot of times, what do you try to do to target? You know, a lot of well-meaning people will take the person being bullied and be like, they're there. It's not so bad. They didn't mean it like that. Uh, they're not meaning to deny the reality of that person's existence, right? They're just trying to like instantly make them feel better about themselves by reframing the situation like they they weren't you know uh being cruel you're not that fat they were they didn't mean it like that they're just joking etc etc and it just makes the person feel like their experience doesn't matter or that you're not taking what they're saying seriously and you know if you have dogs man's best friend growling and raising hackles around you that's that's got to be pretty bad right and like the these white people that have racist dogs, I guess from the white woman's perspective also, they're like, surely this isn't a reflection on white people. You know, maybe there's something in dog psychology that would explain it. And that's kind of the attack that, sh that she went. You know, she's like, you know, it's it's uh, they don't mean it that way. And like, you know, dogs are just this way. And she's trying to make the guy feel better. Like, oh, it's not because you're black. It's because, you know, dogs are weird or whatever. Um but, you know, maybe the reality is that these white people with racist dogs don't have many black friends or family. So the dogs perceive them as outside of their group and are defensive about it. Or maybe, just maybe, the dogs are picking up on some actual physical discomfort from being around a black person and are acting accordingly. Maybe.
Maybe it's not even something you're consciously aware of. Maybe you're tensing up as you're approaching a black man on the street. At any rate, it's almost never actually helpful to try to explain away the person's attempts to convey to you the reality of their own existence. Uh, so when this young white woman did that and the black man lashed out at her on Twitter, uh, it was very clear that she was hurt and angry about the reaction and she's getting dogpiled because, you know, she didn't mean it that way. So if you don't want to be that person that gets dogpiled and the, uh, the other risk about this, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do a podcast on white fragility at some point. The other problem with this is like that white woman is that danger of being radicalized because like she tried to say something that wasn't that bad and make this person feel better and she got her head bit off. And so what's the fucking use? Um, but but like you're saying here, the best thing you can do is just listen to it, play it through your head like you were in their shoes, sit with it a while. You don't have to ascribe to everything that a black person says. I mean, a lot of people take it to extremes because let me assure you that minorities are just as capable of sticking their heads as far up their ass as any white person or any man. Uh, they just haven't nearly as much chance to do so, or at least do so with any kind of platform where people will take them seriously. So maybe we just listen to them. At worst, you'll learn a novel new way to stick your head up your ass. And at best, you know, you come away closer to understanding the world we live in and how others move through it. Stacy continues, uh, don't serve on any panel, board, or et cetera, where everyone is white. I want to push back on this one a little bit because maybe that's something you can do in L.A. or in New York City. But I think this could actually be disastrous if we applied it everywhere. Uh, you know, I grew up in a town that's 99 point what, 1 percent white. I forget what the statistic was in the first podcast. If I didn't participate in any company that didn't hire black people or minorities, I would have not participated in society. Um, and I think that at some point we're going to have to, as liberals and progressives, stop migrating away from conservative places and kind of make stands and, and have fights. But certainly if you live in a progressive area, vote with your feet and your wallet and your dollars and support companies that are supporting diversity. Uh, don't tell Stacy continues. Don't tell uh, people of color about some horrible racist thing you saw. They know about it. If they want to discuss it, they will. And also realize that sometimes I'm not the person they want to talk about with. And this is very important and it's also something that like you know if you're a woke white person and you don't spend a lot of time around minorities uh and you see a minority a lot of times the first thing you think about is the woke thing you just read and you want to get like a cookie for how woke you are right uh, you want people to be recognized that you're not one of those bad people um the problem is just kind of like asking people who look like they're from a country other than America, like, you know, where are you from? Oh, not not New York. Where are you actually from? That's an art. That's a discussion that you might have a handful of times in your lifetime. It's a discussion they have every fucking day of their lives and they're sick of it. So, you know, sometimes you can be a good friend and ally just by giving them a break and not reminding them of whatever shitty thing is happening to their community right now. I think it's a good point. Uh, she follows, be aware of microaggressions, like asking people, oh, look at this, like asking people where they are from and making comments about how unusual or hard to pronounce their names are. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people get triggered by that term microaggression. It's really just an academic term for a little thing that pisses you off. Like someone cutting you off in traffic is a microaggression. 
Imagine if you get cut off in traffic and you go to your office and you start complaining to your workmates about it and they told you, you know what, just just stop whining. No one cares about your fucking commute. Or worse, imagine people uh, telecommuting that just deny that traffic is actually that bad. I drove to work a couple years ago and there was traffic snarls. There wasn't traffic snarls. There wasn't people cutting you off. Like, they're just out there patronizing you, right? And that shit turns into macroaggressions. It can really piss you off if that's your daily uh, experience with the world. So uh, some things to keep in mind also, uh, you know, every minority is not a monolith. Every minority has different ways of thinking about things. Individuals are individuals. Um, and, you know, it's always best to engage on an individual basis as well, too. So, uh, but I like those. those. Those are good points. And if uh, anyone have any others on how we can all be nicer to each other, 3RT at SwizzBold.com. Pete wonders, I hope this is not beyond the scope of the podcast, but would you discuss the U.S. electoral and voting systems, mainly the view to educating people on how unrepresentative and undemocratic they are and how entrenches the toxic two-party system that fuels the polarization of political discussion and policy direction? It would be interesting to examine it in comparison to other country systems which are more representative and tend to leave better, less polarized policy outcomes. Yeah, that's something I really plan to get into as this uh, year's election season kind of heats up. Um, my problem with three right turns right now is I'm basically busting with about 12 different directions that I want to go in, and I'm never quite sure which one is going to be more impactful or which one's more urgent or which one is uh, that I have a better voice for. Uh, so you kind of bear with me because I just can't get around to everything. Uh, just because I don't talk about a particular topic that you're passionate about doesn't mean I don't want to talk about it. It just means that because of the way feedback is going or because of a certain thing in the news cycle or my personal judgment or familiarity with an argument, it's just not the right time for it. But yes, our electoral dysfunction is kind of by design and we could do a lot better. I I, I got to say that like I've always held up other systems like the Canadian system and uh, some other places like... Uh, uh, the way they do things in the UK and Australia that are not explicitly kind of first past the post. They're not explicitly um, a two-party system. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I think, well, that's just the solution. But I look and see how fucked up the politics are in those countries that I've just mentioned. And I'm like, it's not a silver bullet. So what is the best way that we can have some sort of a representational democracy in the 21st century? It's something I would definitely love to explore on uh, three right turns. Rich wonders, love what you're doing with the new show and the network, but wondering if you're planning to be as open with the finances and numbers are you are with Bald Move. I love how you guys lay it all out and tell it exactly how it is with the amount of club members, etc. So what Rich is referring to here, if you're not a Bald Move, uh, uh, not a fan of Bald Move, or you're certainly not a club member, is uh, Jim and I, the the guy who is also a co-owner of Swiss Bold, but is the co-owner of... Um, Bald move with me. We do regularly scheduled things that we humorously refer to as the empire business in uh, tribute to Walter White's famous um, empire building speech uh, is that we talk about like the behind the scenes of like the realities of, of being a, a podcast startup like, you know, cause we're just two dudes from the Midwest. We're programmers and we are figuring a lot of this stuff out about advertising and revenue streams and how much money we make and, one thing we decided early on in our careers is we wanted to be as transparent about that stuff as we possibly could be. 
um, because we thought it would be interesting. It's the kind of stuff that we would love to hear about, like companies and personalities that we follow and we very rarely get. We thought it'd be kind of a cool way to go. And it's been very rewarding and, and very cool and people have very much appreciated it. So I will say that in the new year, very early in the new year, we're going to be starting a Patreon so people who want to can directly support Swizzbold. And that is going to, in large part, um, that and like, you know, our social media following and our downloads uh, is going to suggest where we spend our time in relation to other topics and other projects. It's possible that in six months that Swizzbold uh, or at least three right turns kind of peters out and I've kind of said my piece and the things that I wanted to get off my chest for several years and I don't have to wonder about, well, what if I tried a political podcast anymore? And it just kind of, you know, peters out, dies off. Or it's possible this becomes much bigger than me, just me and Jim and Cecily and really takes off. But I don't imagine that we're going to start being like super opaque about our finances now that we're talking about serious stuff and not just TV and movies, you know? I mean, for one, with Patreon, I think you're pretty much guaranteed to get exactly how many subscribers we have and what kind of money we're making. Um, how much further we get in that depends on you know people's interest, whether we get advertisers, what kind of revenue streams we're dealing with, how big we grow. Um, but no, I don't have any plans to you know build a, a just this giant wall of money that no one has any visibility into from which to launch this kind of progressive podcast from. A guy in Concord writes, I am a Democrat. <gasps> uh, I always vote straight ticket Democrat without really thinking about it, with the exception of some local elections where I usually know more about the individuals. I'm an admittedly bleeding heart, tree hugging liberal. I obviously voted for Obama and agreed with almost 100% of his presidency. That said, seeing where we are with our country today, with politics mainly, but you know, also in a general sense, I wonder if the country would have been better off if McCain had won in 2008. At the end of the Bush presidency was really starting the increasingly sharp red slash blue divide, but that had escalated to a huge degree during the Obama term. It went from disagreements to ugly hatred. By the second term, it led to absolutely nothing going through Congress because Republicans could not let Obama have a single win, whatever that took. And now we have the Trump administration and things have escalated with hatred on both sides. And the Democratic Congress has taken the same stance as the 2012 Republicans of doing nothing that even resembles a Trump win. I hate to say this, but it would not surprise me a bit if Trump were to push some common sense gun control legislation and the current Democrats would find a way to be against it. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, It seems to me when you take this both sides, you got to look at like what you know, Mitch McConnell's doing in the Senate where there's, I don't know, I saw like 200 some bills that have been proposed and they've all died in the Senate. Now, it could be that maybe this uh, House of Representatives doesn't pass as many of those bills through if they know that, you know, some of these things could be like super liberal progressive shit that uh, they'd never tried, that a lot of people would be, hey, wait a minute, they thought I had any hope in the Senate. But, you know, uh, that, that point's fair enough as far as it goes. Uh, I have to admit, I'm not completely knowledgeable about McCain's views. I see him as very conservative, but someone who was open to compromise and working, quote unquote, across the aisle. With that said, I feel like it would have been a much less divisive president and presidency and could have even things out a bit after Bush. And maybe things would have been a bit calmer for an Obama presidency in 2012. Um, I mean... Like I said in the first podcast, I was kind of a bit of a McCainiac, and I was pretty furious about what W did to McCain during the 2000 primaries. I thought he used a lot of really gross, you know, racial tactics against him. 
uh, to kneecap what I thought was a pretty good man. And I, I admire a lot about uh, John McCain, and I, I find it hard to believe that if he'd won in like 2000, that we'd have gotten into the Iraqi war with him as a president. But one thing I want to illuminate as we go further in this podcast is just how long-term this scheme that I see among wealthy, powerful conservatives has been playing out. A lot of what we're dealing with right now in terms of like money and politics, in terms of media manipulation, uh, is a reaction to the downfall of Nixon. Conservatives identified state education, liberal media, and social safety nets as kind of bulwarks against their unchecked power, and they've worked for the last 50, 40, 30 years uh, to systematically undermine public faith in defund and destroy these previously trusted and effective institutions. They pump literal billions into conservative think tanks to author and implement policies and systems to this effect. And while we have our fair share of billionaires, quote unquote, on our side, it just pales in comparison to what the Kochs and the Mercers get up to on their side of things. And this was going to happen regardless of who is in power. It's one of the, the one of the explanations for why We've had some social justice type wins over the last 30 years, but we have had almost zero economic wins. And when I say we, I mean working class, middle class people. Uh, We have been gutted and pillaged. And regardless of who's been sitting in the big seat or regardless of who's been in charge of Congress, right? It's not like having Bill Clinton for eight years made the middle class and lower classes like really strong and and, and did something to end income inequality. It's not like having eight years of Obama uh, did much to to check that uh, downward slide towards income inequality, and there's there's reasons for that, and I've kind of got uh, some inside information uh, that I'd like to share with people from my days when I was helping RedState.com get off the ground that I'm I'm kind of bursting to share. In fact, maybe that's what I come back with in January because I think it's a fascinating topic to see how. There's been a cynical manipulation of like the Overton window to destroy like the education system in the United States and how it's uh, I mean, I've got I've got quotes from people who talked with me quite candidly about it. Um, So that's something maybe we can come back to. Uh, Greg, I heard you talking about needing to grow Swiss Bowl beyond the Bald Move audience. And I had a suggestion for spreading the word. Should reach out to Noah Lugens of the Puzzle in a Thunderstorm podcast network. Uh, he's got a huge audience that I think would enjoy Three Right Turns. Specifically, you would be a perfect guest for their show, God Awful Movies, where they break down and poke fun at the worst in religious cinema from an atheist perspective. Would love to hear you as a guest on an episode where they tackle a JW-centered film. Holy shit, JW.org has hours of horrifying slash entertaining uh, content to consume if they chose to do something like that. I don't think the witnesses have ever bankrolled what I would call entertainment. Uh, <laughs> but they do make uh, some some really shockingly bad children's entertainment, I guess, and cartoons and stuff. And yeah, I, I'd be down to that. Uh, I said, hell, even one of the PIAT podcasters even lives in Cincinnati. Holy shit. Yes, absolutely, Greg. In 2020, I will talk to about anyone that has a platform my size or larger or even smaller because we're pretty small right now who's left of Nazis and right of Joseph Stalin, I'll talk about anything and everything. Uh, If you have a show or a favorite show or you're hosting a show and you want to see me go on, hook me up with those details. Uh, You can also suggest they reach out to me because I've found often that an audience member 
uh, from that community suggesting an interview idea goes a lot further than me suggesting it myself. You know, those pesky in-group, out-group kind of dynamics we talked about. Uh, they're, they're, they're at work again. Uh, especially if multiple members of that community would say, hey, you should talk to Aaron on three right turns because he's got an interesting hook on X, Y, or Z. I'd love and appreciate all that help. Uh, so I have some people in mind that I'm going to be targeting in the new year. Um, me and Jim are kind of like scheming ways that we can we can get onto some of these shows. But I'm just one guy that can consume as much stuff in my free time as I can, which isn't a lot. So like, if you got other platforms and places, I would love to to get that word out. So thank you for that suggestion, Greg. I will try to follow up on that. And anybody else listening, you think that I would sound good or be interesting on your favorite show, please get me in touch with those people because I will devote the time. Donald C., I think you have a great idea for a podcast, and I'm jumping in, and I look forward to more. Well, thank you. As an idea for a topic of discussion in the future, knowing that you have experience in the tech field, I would love to hear your takes on things like data privacy, net neutrality, and copyright law as it applies to this new era of technology and more technical topics. Most politicians are old and do not know their way around this political field, and it seems like we should have more serious talks about this. Anyway, just some thoughts I had. Looking forward to hearing more. So I have a particular kind of mission that I've been trying to articulate for three right turns, and it involves a lot of kind of economic justice and social justice. And I am pretty passionate about these technical topics. Like that's kind of like was my entry into politics back 20 years ago is like, you know, uh, net neutrality, uh, encryption rights, um, reverse engineering rights, things like that, because I've always been technically inclined. But I don't know if it fits into three right turns. Now, I know. When we were conceiving a Swizzbold, the three of us, Jim, me, and Cecily, um, Jim had an idea, and I don't know if it's going to come anywhere in the near future or if it ever will, in, uh, if ever will materialize. Because I know that he's re- what he's really interested in is being a more behind the scenes kind of guy, producer, uh, something like that. But he had an idea because uh, he is very passionate about those topics and he's very informed and he does a lot of reading and uh, stays abreast of that stuff. And he uh, floated an idea again. Don't hold me or him to it of doing uh, something along those lines, the intersection of like politics and culture and technology uh, for some sort of podcast effort. So you might get something. I, I don't think it's going to be something that I would be super involved in right off the bat or if it's even going to be something that's that's occasionally talked about on uh, three right turns. But um, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe Jim will get the motivation and the the, the gumption and the whatever it requires to do something crazy like take on new work nowadays uh, to do that in the new year. But thanks for the suggestion, Donald. Bill D. I am a 40-year-old working in a very small developer gig. We use visual media and machine learning on emotional recognition as a form of reminiscence therapy for elderly residents of high-end assisted living facilities. The idea is that engaging memory-impaired elderly to openly tell stories in an interview setting can hopefully reinforce younger neural pathways, improve mood, and recall. In a bit of self-examination and experimentation on this concept, seeking to tap a little bit of that younger self energy and clarity myself, I tried a less scientific form of this. This involved immersing myself in nostalgia in a controlled manner from a particular era of my youth. Sure enough, playing a lot of Super Mario 64 and watching Star Trek The Next Generation, I did notice an uptick in mental clarity and memory recall, a boost in my mood and humor. A byproduct of the silly test is that now I realize just how formative my 17-year-old self's hero worship of Picard was in building the mental frameworks that I use to determine morality, justice, and leadership. Same page club. 
I think this isn't as simple, but in the same way that Picard's clarity of moral understanding influences my adult life, do you think the anti-heroes of prestige drama may have a similar impact on the adults of the next generation? How many people will emulate Walter White, Tony Soprano, or Donald Draper not realizing the unintentional pattern? That's a really good point and something that I, I worry about a lot. I mean, when I was growing up, I had heroes like Picard and, you know, Jack Ryan and guys who were pretty much good guys. But I also liked a lot of anti-heroes. I uh, like my favorite comic book characters were Wolverine and the Punisher. Um, both of those guys are pretty much anti-heroes. They do a lot of killing. They do a lot of wet work. Uh, they're, you know, instead do a lot of insane psycho behavior and I was honestly gravitated towards the kind of uncompromising violence uh that that stuff offered in 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 kind of like a, a way to escape the kind of Christian bubble that I was in I, I I found the kind of need to explore that side of darkness so like I don't know why my philosophy eventually was kind of dominated more by the Star Trek stuff than it was by the Punisher um you know but 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 there it is and but but I do think you're onto something. Like I think a lot of people, the whoa, the thing that pisses me off the most when I hear liberals is like the sense of complacency that all we have to do is sit back and let older generations die off and the and the world will be ours. It's not so. There's people spending tons of money on young people's ears and influencing young people's ways of thought um, to 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 support a lot of regressive policies. And there's a lot of like increasingly far-right radicalization of like the Zoomer generation. And if we just assume that this is all going to go our way because, you know, it, it, it that that's the way it's kind of been of late, I don't know. Because, you know, the Boomers at one point were pretty fucking liberal. And look at them now. And I really worry about like what happens when the millennial generation gets to the Boomer age. Like, are they going to be as reactionary as their parents? They're raised by those people. We should pay attention. We, we shouldn't give up the fight. We shouldn't assume that certain segments of a society we're always going to own ideologically. It's it's crazy. It's reckless behavior. So, yeah, we should pay attention to that. But, like, how damaging is pop culture nowadays? Um, you know, should we have stuff that's more aspirational? Probably. I don't know how to enforce that. I don't know what damage it's actually doing to young people. I think the, the, the best thing we can do is make sure we pay a lot of attention and money and education. Uh, to give them the best chance to learn how to think and evaluate ideas properly. Uh, he continues, what are the consequences and the viewpoint that the other side is always wrong? Can you talk about the damage of inaction, silence, or being generally apolitical versus the damage of testing the shields of a worthy opponent? For me, I'm concerned about the calcification of the right to not consider aspects of the left, and at times I see the same in my liberal-leaning friends. Both sides have always had a propensity for reality distortion, but I feel like the conservative warp field has been turned up to 9.9 .9 as of late. All pretense of compromise seems lost. It feels like we're in a trajectory to vac vacillate between the same handful of right or left tentpole ideas every four years ago from a right-wing demagogue to a left-wing demagogue and back again each swing of the pendulum isolating half the country as feeling underrepresented that's one of the main reasons that i'm trying to do this podcast because i want to simultaneously pull leftwards against the pendulum as it stands today but when it inevitably swings left i assume inevitably swings left i also want to kind of gently push back in an attempt to maybe keep that swinging in a rational I don't want to say rational in sense, in sense of middle because I actually kind of this whole both sides stuff kind of drives me crazy in the current environment. But like I think about from this perspective, when I was growing up in the Internet, 
you know, when I was a late teen, early 20s, making racist jokes, joking about gassing Jews, Hitler did nothing wrong, throwing around homophobic slurs. It was just how things were because the Internet was mostly white, mostly educated, mostly liberal slash libertarian. And anyone who would like clutch their pearls or appeal to maybe, hey, can we slow down and some of this edgy shit was told, relax, man. It's just memes. It's just a joke. And 20 years later, it's been pretty well documented that a lot of this new rise of fascism we see, especially the ones rooted online, manipulated and encouraged this sort of behavior because it normalized racism, sexism, and many other forms of bigotry. And they could use this like a submarine uses the ocean to kind of rise up, make target attacks against individuals, claim a few victims, uh, win a few mines, and then sink back below the Hitler did nothing wrong memes and slip away from any kind of serious attacks and criticism and live to raid another day. And I, I hate being this both sides guy, like I said, especially in today's climate. But I'll tell you what, the shape and scope of what a lot of leftist discourse on the Internet uh, reminds me a lot of those libertarian, liberal Internet days of 20 years ago. There's a lot of killing landlord jokes. There's a lot of guillotining the rich jokes. There's a lot of Stal- Stalin did nothing wrong memes. There's a lot of whataboutism whenever you try to land any kind of serious criticism of policy or personal politicians. There's a lot of dismissal of education, anti-intellectualism, uh, uh, dismissal of expertise. And if you say, Jesus Christ, are we literally wanting purges and pogroms and guillotining of doctors and scientists and lawyers like in the French fucking revolution? You get this, hey man, stop taking things so seriously, bro. It's all just memes. And maybe, I certainly don't think the goals of like communists and socialists today are as abhorrent as like the Third Reich, right? And I think some of the memes are pretty funny because there's a lot of this like 19th and early 20th century propaganda pieces against socialists. And they always involve like this grim reaper looking figure leading the masses off to hell, wearing a banner saying socialism or some shit like that. And there's one in particular that has like, you know, those um, uh, those memes that like like progressively have a person's brain getting bigger and bigger. There's like one version where there's like a stick figure skeleton saying uh, uh, call in sick. And there's a slightly more sophisticated skeleton saying, go in high. And then there's even a more elaborate illustration of a skeleton saying, uh, go in high and steal stuff. And then the bottom, there's this advanced, elaborate skeleton from one of those like 20th century, early 20th century wood carvings. And he's a he's he's a he's a skeleton and he's got a top hat on and his head's thrown back laughing and he's waving his arms and he's wearing this huge sash that says communism and he's exploding with energy and power. And it says, go in high and start a union. And I think that's hilarious. But why is it funny? It contrasts an immature way to fight back against a man, right? Your employer, like go in high, go in high and steal shit. Something that's ineffective and at best something to distract you from the misery of your job might even wind up with you on the wrong side of the law versus an incredibly effective way to organize and fight for your rights and your fair share, which the right tends to smear as socialist and commie, right? And instead of fighting that, they're like, fuck it, sure, whatever, Labor unions are communist. It's and it's badass. I mean, look at that badass metal skeleton sticking it to the man, right? But you know, gulags have been a thing, and they still are in China, which I see get a lot of disturbing amounts of defense among certain segments of the left. And again, fuck the whole both sides nonsense. But I think it's something as progressives and leftists we should kind of keep our eyes on and remain vigilant against because 
what happens to that meme culture in 20 years? Something to think about. Our final email, Spencer in. As a longtime Bald Move fan, I'm enjoying your new Three Right Turns podcast immensely. Why, thank you. You're offering a perspective that I feel is often overlooked and even in part by me. I was raised in a middle upper class family with an OBGYN doctor, a father in a high income small town in the West Coast. In many ways, I'm the person who has handed down their political beliefs from their parents that you mentioned into your intro podcast. But I've also done a lot of soul searching with regards to my identity and my politics. I was largely raised uh, a-religious. My parents didn't take me and my siblings to church. And in my mind, Jesus was equal to Zeus, who was also equal to Buddha. That is to say, just a myth and an allegory for moral tales. Through my life, I went from religious apathy to militant atheism in my rebellious teenage years to now secular atheism. Much of my aspirations for humanity also spawned from the utopia of Star Trek. And as such, I was traditionally a smart kid in school and life. I'd often pretend to be sick to stay at home from school because school was easy and boring for me, and instead I got to watch Discovery Channel back when they did actual science and nature documentaries. Uh, Yeah, again, same page club. So my questions are these. How do you see the link between conservative values and this seeming pride in anti-intellectualism? For me, this is the biggest hurdle to overcome when speaking with conservatives. I have facts and evidence and science, and it makes logical sense. I don't have to make up justifications or excuses for my beliefs. It's all internally consistent. And yet conservatives seem proud of their ignorance on some topics. They ignore experts and scientists, and it makes my blood boil. How do you have a conversation from when one side ignores reality? And I know, I know from their perspective, I'm just as maddenly stubborn with my head in the sand or rather with my nose in the air and my pinky outstretched for my $15 soy latte. What do you do? Well, Spencer, uh, my granddad grew up in a house that didn't have indoor plumbing and he did not finish high school. I think, in fact, he might have like... uh, left in his freshman year or he might not I don't even know he made it out of middle school and I also realized during his death the year before that it was kind of something of a family secret that he was just barely literate but he retired at like 52 from a great General Motors job he put six kids through college he owned his own home he owned a retirement home that he built with his own fucking hands uh, out in the sticks of Spencer Indiana and he was a very proud capable man I mean, what he could do in the workshop, uh, his work ethic, what he could do with a welding machine, it was just incredible. And he knew trees. Like, I'd go out walking with him, and he'd, he'd know trees not just from, like, leaves, uh, but he could, like, tell with shocking accuracy just from, like, the shape and texture of the bark. Like, even in the dead of winter, he could tell, like, you know, this is an English ironwood. This is a, you know, a fucking sugar maple. This is a you know, locust tree. But the quickest way you could invoke my granddad's ire is to talk down to him or to perceive to be talking down to him. And as a smart and brainy kid myself, a lot of times I got on the wrong side of the old man more than once. Because who the hell was I, some punk kid spawned from his own punk ass kid, to tell a man of his accomplishments and pride anything? Because... You know, smart people in quotation marks were bankers and lawyers. Smart people were the suits at GM trying to fuck over the hardworking guys on the line, just trying to make a living. Smart people were teachers filling his kid's head with garbage in school. Grandpa was super smart. He just wasn't very well educated. And that was a sore spot for him for his entire life. So how do you have a conversation with grandpa? You don't. 
you, you, you travel back in time, make sure he finishes school, make sure he's going to a good school with a competent curriculum. That way he grows up and doesn't have a massive chip on his shoulder about something that he's been self-conscious about his entire life. Unfortunately, the reason we have people denying science and reality whenever they feel like it is because we've let our education systems rot in a lot of places where denying science and reality is currently in vogue. And we're shocked that this is happening. We move away to greener pastures instead of staying in our hometowns and fighting. And this this goes back, like a lot of things in this country, to the Civil War. The North's reconstruction effort didn't just fail black citizens, and it failed them spectacularly. But it also abandoned the white citizens to bad governance and ignorance that just has compounded generationally. Look at the statistics in the United States. Why is it that southern states always bottom the charts in terms of lifespans, medical outcomes, economic opportunities, infrastructure, education? What are we who live in places that are doing better willing to do to spend and to work to help those people out? Or do we seek ways that we can abandon and cut these people off? I mean, it took years to get to this point. Entire generations have been lost. And like I've said, we have spent at least 30 years with a coordinated attempt to destroy these institutions. Are we willing to spend another 30 years fixing them? Are we going to then, once we do that hard work, be eternally vigilant against those who want to roll back the clock on the progress that we've achieved once we do? Or are we going to be satisfied once we get the right people back in office? Then we can go back to our video games, to our TV, to our favorite football teams, and be just so thankful that we can go back to ignoring politics again. Oh my God, I'm so glad. I don't know. I don't know the answer because I think the real answer is it's going to require that 30-year effort. It's going to require us teaching future generations about why these struggles are important. And, and we are going to have to be eternally vigilant against complacency because if we don't, we're going to get right back into the state to where we are right now. This has happened in America again. It will happen in the future unless we find ways to, to keep it from happening. And those are some things we can talk about. So that's going to be it for three right turns until 2020, which is just a few weeks away. Uh, I'll be taking a week or two off to spend with my family and friends this holiday season. I hope you guys all get to as well. But that means there's not going to be a three right turns in two weeks. But we'll be back January 20th with another one. I'm looking forward to having more time to work on this in the new year. Returning to the conversations about what we can do with billionaires, because I kind of put that on hold this week to to catch up on feedback, Uh, how we can help each other understand the critical role that sex, race, education, money and politics play in our life. I'm hoping we can get some guests lined up and get away from this kind of manifesto style podcasting we've been doing. Uh, 3RT at SwizzBold.com is how you send in feedback or on the subreddit r slash r slash SwizzBold. Follow us along and all the social medias at SwizzBold if you want to stay up with the latest on how you can uh, our our new content and ways you can support us. Like I said, we're going to have more concrete ways to support SwizzBold and what we're doing here in the future if you have the ability and inclination. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, a very happy new year to everyone. Rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, and I will see you next year. Mm-hmm.